Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Dr. Jeffrey Kay, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming back to chat with me about your uh, your most recent work. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Let's go. So, um, Dr. Kay is a highly respected psychologist and a expert on current torture and rendition techniques and developments. He writes on torture and other subjects for Firedog Lake truth out and then most recently what we're talking about today his uh current run at counterpunch uh article is titled cia mk ultra and the cover-up of u.s germ warfare in the korean war so uh dr k i would hope would you take us through uh briefly on your on your article um what you've discovered and how um um how uh, how recent discoveries may have changed how some of the, these uh, these events, looking back on them, look. Okay, well, one thing I do want to say because the Board of Psychology in California might might be uh, interested in these things. I'm technically a retired psychologist. That's retired I'm psychologist. Supposed, I'm supposed to say that because I'm not currently licensed. Uh, my licensure um, went with my retirement. So I'm sorry. So you're asking me again. Um, about the um, about your most recent article, discussing yes. about the the uh, forced retractions of of American POWs right. and right. about the how the the beginnings of um, Project Bluebird and I can right. drop the other yes. one into MK Ultra. Right, right, and we could add the word brainwashing because that's probably what a lot of your listeners are familiar with from popular culture and terminology because that's when the whole idea of brainwashing began. Well, te technically it began even before the Korean War um, during the, as the Cold War began, and really our story begins before the Korean War with the um, onset of the, of the Cold War a hard Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States in the late in mid to late 1940s. And um, during that period, there were a series of trials in East Europe, um, uh, particularly a, a famous one was in Hungary, Cardinal Mazenti, and um, another guy from IT&T, um, Robert Vogler. Um, these were, uh, he was an American ex uh, business executive in Hungary. And he and Cardinal, these guys were charged with um, espionage in Hungary against the Soviet Union on behalf of the United States. 
And arguably or not, um, they were tortured in custody. And when they, uh, and there's con controversy over that. And then when they came time for the trial, they um, confessed to, in fact, espionage and, um, um, you know, being uh, working for the United States intelligence services and military. Well, this, of course, would later happen. The exact same things would happen with the, uh, uh, except it wasn't a trial, but they were in a POW camp. But the same thing would happen with U.S. flyers who were captured by North Korea and China uh, down planes during the Korean War, who then confessed to use of biological warfare um, to their captors. And... Um, arguably, controversially, under torture or not. Um, they later recanted, as did uh, Robert Vogler when he returned to the United States, ultimately. But what was similar was, uh, you know, why did they confess? Why did they say they were doing these things if they were false confessions? Well, just this year, in the um, Journal of Cold War Studies, I believe it is, um, published MIT Press, published a, a big article um, on... Uh, um, the Vogler case and um, bringing out all the information. It turns out all these years later, and this is the you know pretty much the first instance of an um, of an American source saying this. Vogler was guilty. He did in fact collaborate with U.S. intelligence. He, his confession was true. He may have been tortured to get that confession. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked deeply enough into the case. But was was interesting is that um, today uh, Cold War scholarship in the United States admits that this man's so-called false confession was really true. And that's what I'm saying about the uh, 25 or so confessions that were printed by uh, the Chinese government of uh, various high-ranking, some of them very high-ranking officials who um, said that the United States had implemented what initially was an experimental program of biological warfare in Korea. And, um, and then later expanded that out as the war went on. Um, there since then, there's been lots of uh, evidence um, that was um, circumstantially supporting those assertions. Um, um, there was also some evidence published that supposedly uh, disproved it by saying this this was all a hoax, you know, formed by the uh, communists. Um, what I discovered and concurrently, roughly around the same time, so did another researcher, Nicholson Baker, who's a fairly well-known author, um, discovered a number of um, uh, documents that the CIA had released 10 years ago. And um, well, now 10 years ago, at the time I found them, it was maybe four or five years previously. Anyways, part of a release called Baptism by Fire to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Korean War beginnings. And um, I, I hunted through those documents and discovered that about two dozen of them um, discussed, um, well, these documents were communications intelligence um, reports by analysts in Korea back to headquarters, um, looking at communications intercepts decrypted for the um, Armed Forces Security Agency, which was the predecessor of today's NSA, National Security Agency. They, they had cryptologists, they you know, um, intercepted radio communications from one military unit to another. They decrypted those um, communications and, you know, and reported and, and sent them out to their, uh, you know, their clients, which was the CIA, military intelligence, et cetera, you know, so that they could 
know what's going on in the field. This is not an unusual thing. This is what most armies do today and have done for some time. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, information about uh, what we know about the Holocaust, uh, as it unfolded, at least initially in East Europe, was discovered through communications intercepts uh, by historians later that came out in the, in the 80s and 90s. So um, these communications intercepts show you know, various um, Chinese and North Korean units reporting that they were being attacked by you know, biological weapons, by insects being dropped, et cetera. Um, in some cases, they were in uh, terrible straits. In other cases, um, the charges turned out to be not true. It was a, a mistaken report. Um, so it has a, the, the feel of verisimilitude. And of course, it's... Uh, its 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 origins the documents are from the CIA so we're not even reading documents from some communist source this is from the CIA and that's what these these documents say so that came out and I believe that that you know really uh, um, substantiated the charges that the flyers made um, in the 1952 and 53. When these when these confessions were released over a period of time, and um, there have been other scholars who've worked on other aspects of this. Nicholson Baker is one. Um, the late Stephen uh, Canadian scholars Stephen Endicott and Edward Herman were others, and there and there have been a number of others. Um, and I, what I'm trying to do is, is is put it together as well as I can. This is really a wide open area of U.S. history because it's been closed off. And in fact, part of this past year, one of the discoveries I made that was uh, quite shocking to me personally was the extent of censorship that was uh, the United, United States population was subjected to in the 1950s and the early 1960s. Um, I'm going to be writing another article on this soon because um, I'm going to look exactly at how this happened. But I discussed it a bit in, in one of my articles. And, um, you know, what happened was... In, in, the United States Postal Service and the uh, uh, U.S. Customs um, uh, using an interpretation of a World War II um, ruling by an att the Attorney General on a 1938 law, this is once we get into it, um, decided that they would, uh, that anything that was proper, that they deemed political propaganda would be seized and destroyed them if it was coming from abroad, but in particular from iron, so-called Iron Curtain countries. So we're talking about the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, basically at that time, and the, some of the East European countries. And um, this was a massive program. I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of, of works were destroyed during this period. And uh, there were protests by uh, American book publishers and by scientists as early as the mid-50s, I just recently discovered in con old congressional hearings, um, protesting how this was actually harming national security and nobody knew what was happening in the arc, you know, our archives, uh, the, the sources we, you know, that American scholars, including intelligence agents, would be using open, so-called open source to find out what was happening and what the other side, so to speak, was thinking and saying weren't available to them in the United States. It was, you know, it was, uh, and, and, and um, 
the category was so broad that just even basic scientific papers that people would share, the scientists were upset. They, they, they couldn't find because it could be considered propaganda, right? Because if here's a paper with a discovery by a Soviet scientist, well, guess what? That might be political propaganda if you're a McCarthyite Cold Warrior because it's trying to say that the Soviet Union can do good work in science. It's not political propaganda, so that, but that wouldn't be allowed in the United States. So this was a massive program. And um, today, if you, if any of your listeners want to Google postal censorship, um, guess what? You won't find it. You won't find it, that this program existed. But it did. And um, it finally was ruled unconstitutional in 1965. The, uh, I could go into that whole story. I'll save it for another article. But that's just the degree of, of censorship. And of course, then you have the American intellectual establishment, much of which was compromised already, the academic establishment and the press, because they worked so closely with the military and intelligence agencies already. Uh, many of them did. And uh, the American government put all of its prestige on the line to say that the charges of biological warfare were false. They were a hate, part of a hate America campaign. And, um, you know, and that, that, that there was no such thing could have happened. Um, there was one other important um, factor that was entering into this. And this had to do with an agreement that the United States government made with the uh, former heads of uh, leading members of Japan's biological warfare unit itself, known today as Unit 731, which was its largest and, and central division, but there were others. It was Unit 100, there was the Tama Detachment, there was all these other biological warfare, because Japan was, in fact, um, had a massive biological warfare experiment uh, camp, uh, research program. Um, they killed uh, thousands of people. Um, the U.S. today itself admits uh, um, as part of their research, they you know, um, would infect people and then dissect them alive to study the disease process and the various pathogens they were developing and how you deliver them. And their specialty was to deliver them via uh, what are called insect vectors, meaning insects would be, you know, uh, um, insects would be inoculated with, say, plague, the fleas, human fleas with plague, and then dropped um, in various types of uh, delivery devices, bombs and parachutes and all sorts of things are just dumped into wells and, you know, uh, rivers and streams uh, to spread uh, disease. And um, anyway, after the world, after the war was over, the U.S. captured you know, some of these people, they knew about it from intelligence reports that had already been coming in, in the late stages of the war. They sought them out, they interviewed them, and they made an agreement that they would not prosecute them as war criminals, even though in Germany they were doing prosecuting the exact same kind of thing as war criminals in, in Nuremberg. But in, in, the, in the East, they would, they, they would pretend like it didn't exist. They would hide these people. They literally hid helped hide the, the leader of Unit 731, Shiro Ishii, so, uh, so that the Russians couldn't interrogate him um, themselves. Um, and because uh, a lot of this happened in northern Manchuria, along the border of the Soviet Union, in fact, there had been an attack by the uh, Japanese uh, used biological weapons against uh, the Soviet Union in a, in a border skirmish uh, in Mongolia in 1938 or so. And um, 
you know, they, they hid this and became top secret. It went into intelligence channels, uh, um, godfathered in by General MacArthur, um, who was a supreme commander in uh, Far East at that time, but um, and then um, made operational by the scientists at Fort Dietrich, who came out one by one over a period of a few years to interview the Japanese scientists. And by some accounts, the Japanese some, some of the Japanese scientists also went to Fort Dietrich to with those people and um uh it was important to keep this so it became secret you couldn't talk about that you couldn't if, if you look at documents about biological warfare i've looked at many of them they never including top secret documents the history of the air force and biological warfare top secret history so, you know the history of the chemical corps these are in-house histories by the way not written by external scholars, but, you know, they would do their own internal histories and they wouldn't talk about it. So that, that's how deeply it was buried. Um, um, meanwhile, some of the people involved in that, in the amnesty program became leading members of the biological warfare uh, program during the Korean War. I mentioned some of them in my article. Edward Wetter is one. He was the um, executive deputy director of uh, the biological warfare committee for the Research and Development Board, which was the Pentagon's big umbrella um, development, weapons development agency um, on, on a large, you know, looking over, uh, over the entire spectrum of what they were developing. And they had a biological warfare you know, committee and, and he was its executive director and they had sub panels in the committee, you know, the panel on man, you know, weapons that would attack man, weapons that would attack animals, plants, Etc. And um, uh, so they were they were well placed, and they knew about uh, they had taken all uh, of the techniques of the Japanese, and uh, they found them very valuable. Um, and uh, it wasn't the way they necessarily wanted to go. They were going to use their techniques, but what happened was when the Korean War. Um, most people don't know the history of the Korean War. It's often called the Forgotten War. But the most important thing to remember probably is that the first six months or so of the Korean War was it was kind of insane. <laughs> I mean, like no other war the United States had ever been in. The, uh, uh, the war ostensibly started in the middle of uh, late June, excuse me, uh, June 25th, I think, 1950, when North Korean troops you know, invaded uh, South Korea. But of course, uh, in Korea, North Korea, South Korea, that was a fiction created by the Americans with the Soviets' assistance. It was just Korea. And in fact, there had already been basically a civil war was going on. And there was a subject perhaps for another show, but there was tremendous uh, internal um, strife within South Korea itself. There were a lot of border skirmishes in which thousands were being killed already before the war even began. Anyway, the war begins officially. And... Um, North Korea sweeps through South Korea, which was run by corrupt people put in place by the American uh, military government that had ruled South Korea for a couple of years. And they were um, um, these guys had worked with the Japanese who had been colonized Korea for, for 30 years and they were hated. And the North Koreans who uh, are army of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea swept through South Korea, almost took almost won everything, had pushed the South Korean government, the Rock or Republic of Korean government and its American allies down to a little tiny corner of uh, South Korea near Busan. And um, 
uh, that ended with a, a, a swift, uh, swiftly organized, and I wonder you know, how they were able to organize it so quickly, except that America had massive assets uh, nearby in Japan, of course, still from the war. And they invaded uh, near Seoul at Inchon, um, kind of came in through the, re you know, the, the rear of the North Korean army, cut them off from their supplies. And then uh, they kind of routed the North Koreans and uh, North Korea retreated all the way up to the border of China, the North Korean forces, and the Americans looked like were trying, were wanted to go into China. That was MacArthur's thing. And then China, um, for various reasons, not least its concern about its own existence and its own uh, security, invaded uh, in uh, late October and in November, um, invaded, uh, sent its troops in to, to help the North Koreans and. Uh, and they came in and swept uh, pell-mell. The American forces fell back in, a, in one of the worst retreats the United States Army has ever had, maybe ever will have, I don't know. But it was it was a, a true defeat for the Americans. And they were swept back below the 38th parallel. I mean, they were, and um, yeah, I mean, so that the cities of Pyongyang and Seoul were occupied and reoccupied back and forth by different forces multiple times in a period of six months. And, um, the war wasn't going so good. And there was a lot of talk about using nuclear weapons at that point. But the Soviet Union now had nuclear weapons. And um, Truman, rightly so, uh, and others were concerned about World War, you know, having this be a breakout of World War III. Uh, things were very tense in East Europe. You know, there was a lot of war weariness still uh, from World War II. Um, um, America may not have suffered the way, say, the Soviet Union or Germany suffered from the war, but uh, you know, together the U.S. and the U.K. had lost a hundred thousand soldiers um, in World War II. That—that's a lot of people, and and there was uh, uh, you know, people that weren't ready for another war. In fact, the Korean War, when it did break out, was not popular, and. Um, uh, um, ultimately, Truman was thrown out of office, partly because he, he just could not end the Korean War, which people didn't want. But um, they didn't, you know, lacking, uh, not, um, they turned to, lacking uh, the use of, bio, of atomic weapons, they turned to the other weapons of mass destruction, that was biological and chemical weapons. Um, I don't know the extent in which chemical weapons were used, except that napalm, if you want to consider it a chemical weapon, I think it is, was plastered um, all over North Korea, burning down almost every city, every building. The war in the north went underground. People lived underground. It was it was hideous. Millions of people were killed or injured, uh, civilians. It just just a, a nightmarish kind of war. This was throughout the peninsula. Um, so I'm going far afield, but I think your listeners need to understand just how how savage. The Korean War really was, and how a decision to use biological weapons made sense to the, you know, to a certain coterie within the American military and intelligence agencies. Um, and uh, you know, they had numerous. If you read my article, people will see. You know, there were numerous boards that were assembled to study the use and what was, you know, what should we do and what should we use and what are the problems and. What, my, what I was surprised to discover, and what this new article, of course, explores in some detail, is the degree to which the CIA was involved in all this. And not just the CIA per se, but the CIA's um, program of mind control and exploration of behavioral or mind control, as exemplified by um, Project Bluebird, 
which was the first that the CIA had. There was a military program before that that the Navy had called Project Chatter. But um, so Project Bluebird, which then basically just changed its name and became, as it grew, and became Project Artichoke. Um, and by um, uh, mid-1953, um, the program, um, Artichoke program, which involved exploring different kinds of drugs to use to um, regress people, to help um, hypnotize them, to give them amnesia, uh, to interrogate them, in other words, as part of a, of a massive interrogation program um, stimulated by, you know, supposedly by the brainwashing fears that they had way back from these, you know, people. They, they, they supposedly believed, maybe they did. I, I, I'm unsure of this myself, but they supposedly believed um, that the communists had developed extremely sophisticated drugs or mind control techniques so that any American captured would be open to giving up information or being used um, in false confessions or show trials um, for the communists. And so, and they wanted to uh, combat that even more. They wanted to do it themselves. <laughs> and, um, and they wanted to be able to wipe out, if you're a soldier, or you're on a mission, let's say you're in an airplane flying a germ warfare mission or any kind of covert mission. And there were other kinds of covert missions also, which I mentioned in the article, um, supporting say guerrilla warfare. And you're down and you're captured. Um, they wanted to be able to, to wipe your mind clean. Perhaps, uh, especially hypnosis seemed like a great idea because if you say the right word, Suddenly now I don't remember posting a pre, you know, pre-programmed hypnotic commands. Um, it gets so bizarre. It's, it's hard to believe that they, they were, they believed all this, but I believe they did um, on some level. And, um, and that's, and that's what they were following. Um, um, I don't know if that takes you far into your question there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, it seems, it seems as though it's that what you just described as the, the, whatever the perceived belief was that the Soviets could do, that mm -hmm. the CIA and and on on down on down the pipeline and all of these various projects and military tests and such, they wanted a chemical form of that. They wanted a chemical form of, I can remove one thing from your mind, and they wanted it to be able to be controlled and rather seamless in exactly what it did and they put all these people in various places through horrifying things in in that aim because it was so needed but i have to assume that the fear that the soviets had it too drove it an unreasonable amount as well right yes um you know, to go back, it would be great to, I wish I could, and I'm, I'm of course trying to do that, to get back to the, the very origin of it, you know. And I think, as it turns out, you have to go back to the OSS days, at least in the United States, because the OSS had developed, uh, one thing that we do know about is they had what they called the Truth Serum Committee. And this Truth Serum Committee uh, was organized uh, using, um, you know, kind of what would happen later with MK Ultra. There were there was intelligence people involved in the OSS, and they had reached out to um, academics or experts in their field, right? Of uh, scientists and you know psychologists and psychiatrists, and medical doctors, and uh, this the, this thing it was very top secret. Um, at one point, they were so worried about um, 
the security of the truth serum um, uh, work that uh, they went in, uh, to sites that were controlled as part of the uh, uh, Project Manhattan the atom bomb project which all which was under extreme security so the, this was all seen at that level in other words and it was overseen by the way by a man by the name of dr winfred uh, over overholzer i hope i'm pronouncing it correct um and he was the uh head of saint elizabeth's hospital psychiatric uh, hospital um in washington dc and um later he turns up in this story and the re uh the reason, in fact, I bring him up is I discovered him first because he was the medical expert who examined and was called to testify about the uh, um, how the torture had produced false confessions in the case of Colonel Frank Schwabel, who was a uh, Marine Corps officer who had been shot down and who uh, gave a, a quite extensive and detailed confession to how uh, the German warfare program came about. Who, who did what, who said what, you know, he, you know, he charged uh, the Schwabel's confession, which can be read now online, um, you know, uh, said that the program was directed uh, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, in October 1951. Uh, directives were hand delivered uh, down the chain of command, you know, to General Ridgeway, commanding general of the Far East Forces, and then further down to the uh, um, General Wayland, who was the uh, commanding officer of the Far East Air Force, and all the way down the chain of command. And, um, well, <laughs> this, this just blew their minds. <laughs> you can imagine you're in the Pentagon and you're reading this guy who was the chief of staff or, or whatever he was. He was a very high official um, uh, leading a Marine Corps air wing, um, was testifying to all of this. And... Um, I mean, I say testifying because uh, we call them confessions. The Chinese call them depositions. You know, and they had them write up depositions. Um, and uh... Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Korgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. 
or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. So, uh, that was pretty shocking, and um, uh, uh, I'm afraid you know, I got lo- there's so many things in my head, I got lost uh, where I was headed with that. That's okay. <laughs> I apologize. Um, just because it was a, just a cool little little aside here, mm-hmm. as I was oh, reading through Overholster. Here, uh, if I could, okay. Oh, sure, sure. Overholster was the guy who was called to testify. So here's the guy. He's just a medical, he's called as a medical expert. No one in the, his trouble, unlike most people, was put in front of a formal court of inquiry after his return. Um, he had been, um, and my article describes how the counterintelligence corps worked with him on his uh, um, recantation of his confession, how they threatened him with prosecution for treason, giving aid to the enemy, which is, carries a death sentence. Um, and how he, and basically they did that to all of the Air Force, all the Air Force or Marine personnel who, who confessed. They were all threatened with prosecution for treason, which carries the death penalty. And, uh, and guess what? They all recanted. <laughs> um, in this case, it wasn't anything, as far as I can see, they didn't use uh, fancy MK Ultra or artichoke techniques to get them to recant. They just simply threatened them with, you know, prosecution and death. <laughs> Which is, yeah. And um, so, so Overholster, of course, that was never mentioned at the trial. No one knew his connections to OSS mind control research that was done. So that's an example of how everything that was happening with the 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 um i know it sounds so conspiratorial to say mind control maybe we can come up behavioral control drug but i don't know what else to call it uh that's what it was and um uh uh yeah and i say this as a psychologist you know anyone knows in the medical field that any medical knowledge whether it be psychological psychiatric or maybe uh, you know bodily or whatever can be used for harm as well as for good and that certainly is the case uh, with psychological knowledge if you want to understand why somebody breaks down because of trauma guess what you just understand how to break a person down and then you can utilize that information and in fact that was done uh, by the cia in its most recent uh, you know, uh, affair with torture uh, under uh, the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques um, used at Guantanamo and black sites and CIA in, in the 21st century. So um, this, is, this is how things can occur. I'm sorry, so I'm going to send you back. You just needed to finish the thing on overhauls. Oh, no, I appreciate it. I, um, going back for just a second to, uh, to Colonel Schwabel, mm-hmm. did, was there any point... And this may have been from study much later. Was there any point where uh, writers or researchers were able to discern how he really felt about that original confession about the about what was actually happening in the program? I mean, and and I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a, I'm a former soldier. Just to read that yeah. stuff, it blows my mind. You know, just to think. Yeah. And and but we also don't fully comprehend what the what the conditions were for him when right. he was in captivity and what conditions right. he gave that, right. that deposition so right 
Well, that really does get to some of the core of the controversy, what you bring up. What did he really think? I mean, in his uh, confession to the Chinese, he says, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't have to say this, but I'm going to say it, which is, this, this thing made me sick. I mean, this, I, this isn't a quote now, I'm paraphrasing, but, but sure. this, this was dishonorable to use biological weapons. Nobody I knew liked it. We were all kind of upset about it. Um, and, uh, and nor did I think that it would even work. It wasn't even an effective weapon. That's what he seemed to think. And it seems genuine when you read it. It doesn't have the feel of a canned thing that you know some enemy told you to say. But once he's back in the United States and after being threatened with uh, uh, treason and, and uh, with a death penalty, he now says, you know, I was tortured to say those things. What I had to say were ridiculous. Uh, um, and um, but as as um, um, a very sympathetic researcher on Schwab's life, Raymond Lech, who's now passed away, um, in his uh, book um, and interviewed Schwab and, and knew him to some extent, said, uh, you know, he was uh, 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 he was you know uh, um, talked about being uh, held in solitary confinement and being um, you know uh, kind of worn down over a period of, you know, in this case, you know, three or four months um, with poor food and uh, stress positions. He didn't use that term. He himself said, I wasn't tortured. You know, I, 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 don't, you know, I don't want to make it sound, he says, like I was tortured. But because in his mind and in many people's mind, torture means they didn't put bamboo under my fingernails. You know, I wasn't waterboarded. I wasn't, you know, uh, uh, you know, they didn't hold a gun to my head. Um, but what they did uh, was use, uh, you know, psychological forms of torture, although stress positions kind of are borderline case because that's uh, stress position is going to have you stand, you know, you know, just sit straight up in a chair and just sit that way for hours. You aren't allowed to sit any other way. And if you do, people come and hit you and make you get back to that position. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's extremely trying. Um, whether he was treated that way or not, I can't say for sure. Um, you know, the men who uh, debriefed Schwabel, you know, the, the psychologists who I mentioned in my article, many of them, uh, uh, they had, you know, had already been studying torture for some time. And, you know, they certainly could have told him to say that. My, I tend to believe that the, um, there was this, you know, of course, the Chinese say that they didn't torture anybody and they treated them very nicely. And the bulk of the prisoners were treated well by the Chinese. Not so much the North Koreans, which is another story in the early phases of the war, but it was a very chaotic time. Um, and you can say whatever you want about that. But, but in, when the China, China took over the POW's um, control, they supposedly were all treated very nicely. The exceptions being these few people who had biological warfare knowledge. Um, but, you know, um, when later um, in the, uh, not that long ago, about 10 years ago, or so what was his name? I wrote it down because I sometimes forget the, uh, yeah, uh, it was Lieutenant Kenneth Enoch. Lieutenant Kenneth Enoch was a navigator and he was another confessor who's Air Force. And he his confession was one of the first published you know, and put out and uh, it was and, um, in 1952. And later, uh, and then he recanted as well. He was a, he was a high-profile confessor because he was one of the first. And he too said, I was tortured, et cetera. 
But um, when he was interviewed by Tim, uh, a, a British journalist, Tim Tate, who was at that time uh, doing a documentary uh, for Al Jazeera, um, um, he told him, you can see it online, um, called, the documentary is called Dirty Little Lies. And he said, no, he was, to, uh, he was not abused when he was in captivity and he was held. Uh, he, he did say that he made up the story about the biological worker still. He didn't. He did not say, "Well, yeah, not only was I not tortured, but I told the truth." But he did say I wasn't tortured. So it certainly calls into doubt. And there was another episode that calls into doubt the story of the torture, and that was uh, the Valley Forge affair, Valley Forge Army Hospital, which I, I talk about at some length in the article, because um, what that showed is that um, in nineteen. Uh, the, the prisoner releases of uh, prisoners held in the Korean War on coming back to America uh, took place in two stages, and they're, uh, they, they're called the little switch and the big switch, the switch, switch of prisoners, in other words. Right? So the North Koreans got back, and Chinese get back some of theirs, the Americans get back some of theirs. The first little switch was mostly people who had been medically you know, injured prisoners, things like that. People were compromised on some level. It didn't include any of the confessors of biological warfare, to my knowledge. And um, this was in spring of 1953. The war was still going on. And um, the uh, there were only about 350 or so prisoners that were going to be released. But um, a little less than 10% of them had been identified by American intelligence, the so-called hardcore cases. These were people who were hardcore, like hardcore communists, that these people had been converted or uh, brainwashed to be uh, for the Chinese and communist side. And that uh, um, the CIA had heard of this, got, got word of it, and um, and when the prisoners uh, were set to come back to the United States, this subset of so-called hardcore prisoners and others who were dubious on some level, or they were worried about about two, a couple dozen of them, um, just uh, were sent to Valley Forge Army Hospital in Pennsylvania under armed guard the entire way. Um, and uh, they were going to do artichoke-style interrogations on them. And just so your audience knows, well, what's an artichoke-style interrogation? What was the CIA, what was the state of art of CIA interrogation in those days? Um, and they were still honing their craft. I mean, they they were using these things for interrogations, and then they were studying it as well. They were using it to study how human beings react under stress. They were using it to study ways to produce amnesia in individuals, studying ways to break down personality and then reconstruct it. Later, um, it would take, uh, I know you wanted to talk about this, later it took a massive form of NMK Ultra and found its, its worst possibly, I'd say probably so, his worst example in the famous experiments of Ewan Cameron in Montreal in, in the mid to late 50s, which was, uh, well, we can get to that, but which my article goes into, and which was uh, overseen by, um, on the CIA side, by the same man who was in charge of overseeing the study of the returning Air Force prisoners would confess to biological warfare. His name is James L. Monroe, the same guy. But anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, 
I mean, this is just it, it kind of even as I say these things myself, I, I don't know how your listeners feel about this, but it, it continues to blow my mind that all these things occurred. They're they're um, used to having their minds blown by people by people <laughs> like you, so it's 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 okay. perfect perfectly all right. Well, I, I'm you know I, I've studied this thing now for some years, and I still continue to be surprised by new findings. Um, uh, it just it's. Uh, um, but I was talking about the uh, the returnees at Valley Forge and the artichoke people. Um, and I linked to the documents in my article. Um, they wanted to run their their standard artichoke approach. And what was that? They would drug people with you know various kinds of drugs that they had, primarily uh, barbiturates, uh, truth drugs like sodium amytal, but also scopolamine and others, and uh, potentially also use electric shock or insulin shock to scramble their minds. What, what, what's an insulin shock? Oh, um, uh, insulin shock, they, they, they give you insulin, um, so much of it, you, you kind of, your body goes into convulsions. To, wow. Both of them produce convulsions, ECT or electric shock therapy, so-called treatment, or, or insulin shock. There was another drug they used to, and since I can't think of its name, it starts with an M. I wrote about it once, but uh, I'll leave that go. But there are various ways in which to scramble the mind. So um, I think they settled more on ECT, which is what they would use. And then later, of course, they would discover LSD and start using that. And the idea was to use that in conjunction with hypnosis, deep hypnosis, and um, other forms of, uh, of interrogation um, to uh, get people to supposedly confess themselves um, um, about things. And they were using, and they, so the, the, there was a plan made up for the Valley Forge interrogations, and it included an experimental drug whose name is still classified, um, that would produce disorientation in the prisoners. And uh, I mean, remember, these were people who were prison POW, American POWs brought back to the United States, sent to an army hospital where they were going to be given electric shock, hypnotized, who knows what, um, you know, to in an experiment, an interrogation experiment, because these, why? Because these people were supposedly had been, um, recruited to communism uh as it turned out and, and as, as it turned out it, this is another bizarre aspect to my standpoint um uh, that came up and i mentioned it in the article internally oh, what happened was the 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 um, initial plan fell apart um at least officially it fell apart the um the families of the prisoners knew that their loved ones were being back sent back under armed guard they they knew that they were going to be given some kind of weird psychological treatment right and and they started protesting and so much so that a high uh, high ranking cia officer hightailed it out there to to the site to kind of you know unruffle some feathers and see what was really going on and in the end kind of put a stop to it at that moment anyway and also some congressional people were starting to ask questions the security of the operation was, was collapsing in other words and and they called it off although they still worked with army and interrogators remember these were all army people the air force people and not any of these um they were working with army cid and interrogators and uh uh providing some kind of unspecified assistance. <laughs> Someone wonders what that was. But later, we see in other reports that the CIA ultimately did go back 
and do its interrogations. And, and to the extent they were artichoke interrogations, I'm not sure, but I don't know what else they would be doing because there was no reason for them to be there if CID had already interrogated. So, um, uh, but with, internally, as the CIA is reporting on this to other people, um, there, I, I have two reports, one to the Psychological Strategy Board, which was a high-level um, joint agency established under, Eisen, uh, under the Truman, I think still under Truman, um, that, uh, uh, yeah, under Truman, we had State Department officials and you know, head of the CIA and others were involved in looking at uh, psychological warfare and plotting that out and trying to coordinate this across all the different U.S. agencies. And uh, they were told um, that there was nobody really of any intelligence interest at Valley Forge. We looked into it, or the Army interrogators. Turned out there was like one guy, maybe, who was a little bit fishy, and we're going to look into him more, and that was it. But when, the, when they were debriefing the FBI on this, they told FBI officials, including Hoover, that, no, wow, these guys were the worst of the worst. And they it showed us that actually the American-influenced soldiers brainwashed to be communists had taken over prisoner of war camps and were running them in, in Korea. Unbelievable. I, I don't think Hoover believed it for a second, by the way. <laughs> Hoover was Hoover was very dubious about the CIA. Um, Hoover has, himself is kind of a monster himself, but he he didn't trust the CIA. Of course, they, they were in competition in various ways, too, and that's one reason. But uh, So they lied to the FBI about it. And then in, their, in another report internally to another part of the CIA, you know, they, they mentioned in passing that you know, we have officers who are going back to Valley Forge and they're going to do the interrogations there. And so, so stuff went on. We don't, we still don't know the whole story, but what we do know is still pretty damning. And it throws a very dark shadow across the claims that the United States was making that the communists were brainwashing prisoners, torturing them, you know, when in fact the exact same prisoners being brought back to the United States were plans to do the torture them, essentially. Uh, you know what? What really went on? And uh, you know, in the in uh, the article also goes a good deal into you know exactly what did happen to the soldiers who were returning, the Air Force personnel and others. You know? I was going to ask. Yeah. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, I I was is that the I, I'm assuming we don't have um, we don't have anywhere near all the information about who it actually happened to um, the soldiers, Air Force. I, I, yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, the interior, the uh, supposedly, according again, researcher Raymond Leck, who worked on the Schwabel case and looked into these things quite a bit, um, uh, the record of the interrogations of the returning POWs uh, were lost in a fire in the 1980s. <laughs> They're gone. Um, but so instead, what we have, uh, and, and the investigations themselves were were classified and top secret, and still. In fact, um, can't really, don't have access to them. But slowly but surely, painstakingly, from my standpoint, who tried to look into it, we're able to determine what did happen. There was a report in 1955, which I linked to in my uh, article, um, which had a number of people involved from the CIA and the DOD and academics, et cetera, and uh, um, uh, CIC, Counterintelligence Corps, which was also heavily involved in the um, uh, debriefing of the returning POWs. 
In fact, the man who was in charge of Schwabel's debriefing initially as he was returning to the United States aboard ship, uh, Lieutenant Matthews was a, a member of the uh, CIC Counterintelligence Corps, still a very highly secret component of American intelligence, now defunct. But um, you, know, you can only find like really one decent book even about them ever written um, on the history of the CIC. That's how secret they, they were. Um, anyway, uh, the um, oh, sorry, I'm losing. I'm trying to get back to where it is. Oh, the the um, the Air Force, uh, where there were, it turned out there were two major um, uh, research projects going on um, to study the returning POWs. One was Army and one was Air Force. And the, um, the, there were also, of course, a couple of Marine officers, just two. And um, they, they seemed to have fallen through the cracks a little bit um, because there was no Marine Corps special agency. There was a Marine Corps board. Marine Corps was um, kind of under the Navy administratively, but um, the primary uh, research was done out of uh, Maxwell Air Force Base, since almost everyone we were talking about here was Air Force, the 23 of them. And uh, there was a, um, an officer education research laboratory out there at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. And at the same Air Force Base, uh, there was um, uh, something called the Air Force Human Resources Research Institute, or HRRI. And uh, they worked very closely together and they worked on something called Project Repair. And Project Repair was the top secret, high level um, study of the returning Air Force prisoners who confessed. And it's probably where people were do like Dr. Louis, well, in fact, we know that Dr. Louis um, West, Louis West, um, who later was a key MK Ultra figure, um, was also, interestingly enough, I throw it in here, the man who, um, uh, who uh, examined Jack Ruby uh, for the government after uh, World War, I mean, after, World, after the assassination of uh, Kennedy and Oswald. But... Um, and then he did a lot of other things too. Uh, and so Project Repair, and the guy in placed in charge of Project Repair was Lieutenant Colonel James Monroe. There he is again. James Monroe, who is this guy? In fact, it's interesting, you find certain people in the military, now you're in the military, you can tell me, but there's guys who become kind of heroes. They become like star figures, it seems to me. Sometimes. I wasn't in the military. But uh, so for instance, James Monroe was, a fam was famous because he had, in World War II, Back as a major in World War II, he had uh, the U.S. was having some problems in their delivery of propaganda leaflets over Europe in World War II. But basically, what they did is they would go up in an airplane and they'd have like incredible, massive load of leaflets. They would just dump them out of the plane. Right? Leaflets would fly everywhere, and um, you know it was kind of messy, and it really didn't get to where it, 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 it couldn't be well targeted. In other words, so he developed a bomb. A leaflet bomb, and um, it was a a five hundred pound bomb or so that had chambers in it, and you could put the leaflets in the chambers and have a timed fuse, and you could pretty accurately over you know a few hundred yards area deliver the leaflets that you wanted to deliver. It's called, and they called it. Uh, um, it became famously known as the Monroe bomb, hmm. and uh, um, and he was a hero in the psychological warfare component of World War II and became well-known. 
and was written up in the press. I mean, this wasn't a, a, a covert thing later, the Monroe bomb, that's what they called it. When the Korean War came around, they had, uh, uh, and the need for uh, use of uh, biological weapons munitions was imminent, was important because they didn't have um, uh, uh, the munitions ready to go for their biological warfare campaign. They turned to um, uh, the use of the, um, uh, the CIA actually developed it at Fort Detroit as part of the Special Operations Division that was there where your listeners might be interested to know one of its leaders was, um, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, uh, uh, Frank Olson <laughs> was involved in this. And, uh, you know, they, they, they morphed the, instead of leaflets, they put, um, you know, uh, feathers, turkey feathers mostly, um, inoculated with various types of diseases, dusted with anthrax, et cetera, and used it instead of leaflets in the chambers of the propaganda bomb and dropped them on uh, North Korea and China. Um, and this even came out at the time in a little bit of a mini scandal when a congressional, the head of a congressional committee who had just been briefed by a general uh, came out and told people, yeah, you know, we, we don't need fancy weapons for biological war. We, we already have weapons on hand that can deliver biological uh, weapon, weaponry. Uh, and I'm thinking here, he says of the leaflet bomb. You know, what? <laughs> it was like, why did he say, of course, the American military got on that path. Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We didn't say that. Oh, he's mistaken. You know? So um, anyway, Monroe is the head of this project repair. And um, and uh, uh, we don't know a lot of what happened. They, they gathered a, a, a group of uh, uh, different, uh, maybe a few dozen doctors, psychiatrists, you know, academic types, and some of the military, some not, to um, to work on the, you know, intensively interview. We don't know everything that happened, perhaps experiment upon. Were some of these people objects of artichoke experiments, for instance? It seems, it certainly seems possible, um, uh, but we just don't know. That's, that, that was pure speculation on my part, but you do have the same kinds of people around, and we do know that they were, uh, uh, intricately involved with biological warfare campaign. So for instance, the Human Resources Research Institute, HRRI at Maxwell Air Force Base, um, its parent agency was um, Air Research and Development Command, ARDC, in Maxwell, also headquartered in Maxwell Air Force Base. ARDC, if you look through the materials, is um, was heavily involved in the implementation and development of biological warfare munitions. So you have the agency, the, the parent agency, uh, the, an investigation whose parent agency was, was part of the biological warfare development hierarchy and campaign, which then does its own investigation of the people who confess to the use of biological warfare. Something's not right here. And in fact, you know, so over and over you see that these are just fake investigations. Back to the Schwabel trial. One of the, the there were uh, <clears throat> three officers, you know, who were going to, uh, high-ranking officers who were going to, uh, well, maybe it was four, it was three or four, I'm sorry, I, I'd have to look back. But anyway, of the three or four officers who were in charge of the decision that would be made on Schwabel as to whether or not he was um, guilty, a traitor, which would be, you know, implement what kind of punishment we should deal out to him, um, was a man by the name of General Schilt, 
General Schilt was actually named in Schwabel's own <laughs> confession as one of the major officers involved in the chain of command in biological warfare. And yet there he, why would he be, uh, there's no way that that guy should be judging Schwabel on what he's doing. How could that be? Of course, it's never mentioned. No one's ever, even Raymond Leck seemed to have flown by him. Although I know Leck, Leck published Schwabel's uh, confession. He knows what's in it. He knew who was on the board. I don't know why he ignored that. But I think he had already convinced himself that uh, Schwabel was telling the truth about being tortured and having false confessions. And, you know, there's something, you know, that in, in psychology, and I can say this as a psychologist, it's called confirmation bias which is the short way of saying it is, we believe what we want to believe. We believe what we've been taught to believe, right? And when you're faced with something different, it produces a state of internal confusion or anxiety, sometimes called cognitive dissonance. And the default is to go to that which is known and not necessarily accept that which is you know, highly discordant with your own major views. And I realize that that's what I'm doing in many ways um, in, all, in my work. And what I'm proposing here is a revisionist history of the Cold War. I mean, a lot of it's already known. MK Ultra is not my discovery. A lot of really good researchers have written books and studied and done an incredible amount of work on it. Um, and a lot of the things I, I get are coming from other people, drawing together from other people. But the, everything that I'm talking about in terms of the investigation into the uh, uh, the flyers, you know, by the military and the CIA um, about the um, the confessions, which were not published. Remember, I mentioned the censorship. Your listeners at the beginning of this interview, I, I brought up, well, those confessions were published, but they never reached the United States. What really got me first interested in pursuing this um, is, a, you know, in, in the dogged way that I ultimately did um, was that I too was uh, um, like the researchers back in the 50s who testified to um, troubles with this censorship. Uh, you know, when I um, heard that the United States government was involved in torture um, in, uh, you know, black sites in Iraq and Guantanamo, as a psychologist myself, and I heard that psychologists were involved in this, I started reading about it like many people did. I read my New York Times articles and it said, yeah, these people, you know, were. Um, uh, these psychologists in the CIA had recreated the forms of interrogation used by the Chinese communists to create false confessions during the Korean War. And, and so I, I can, you know, it's pretty easy to sit down at Google and say, well, false confessions, Korean War, what are they talking about? Oh, it's biological warfare. I didn't even know about that. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, okay, well, we should be able to read those confessions. I would be curious to see what they said. I want to see how outlandish I want to, I'm, I had worked, which I, listeners may or may not know, I had already been working for a number of years with torture victims. Uh, you know, part of my psychological practice before I retired was to, I uh, was with the Survivors International Torture, Torture Treatment Center in San Francisco Bay Area. Your listeners may not know that there are torture treatment centers in the United States in various different cities. And there are even in other countries around the world because uh, unfortunately many, many countries still practice torture. And um, many of these torture victims um, 
and were, had come to the United States where they sought political asylum based on persecution and their, and their claims for persecution were based on the evidence of having been tortured. And my job was to help them document that if they could by you know, extensive psychological examination reports. In some cases, I also did psychotherapy with torture victims. So I, I was very interested, as you can see, in the subject of torture. And um, so I, I thought it would be helpful to me in understanding my clients and just a, a basic historical interest to read the confessions, the tortured confessions, um, and see how they lined up with what was happening in Iraq or Guantanamo and my own clients. And um, I, I couldn't find it. I, I just, where, where are these confessions? I you know, looked online, I couldn't find them. My libraries couldn't find it. Um, I ultimately secured a copy uh, um, from um, Great Britain. Um, and only this year did I discover, the same thing, by the way, with another report where some of the confessions had been published in a report by the International Scientific Commission, an ad hoc uh, group put together by the World Peace Council um, in 1952 to investigate the allegations at that time. It was left wing, et cetera. And, um, but uh, it was headed by a, a very famous British scientist by the name of Joseph Needham, who was uh, very well known in the world. And they concluded that the charges of biological warfare made by the uh, by China and North Korea were true, were correct. And um, they published some of the four confessions as part of their an appendix to their report, along with a lot of other appendices of backing their, their findings. And um, I couldn't find that either. So that started to be suspicious to me. Why is it I can't find the very evidence that they're talking about on this? How, I mean, the Korean War, I know, was a long time ago, but you can find stuff from World War II, and that's even longer ago. How, how could I not find? You know, I, I can find what I could find what German off high German officers were saying to themselves in captivity between themselves in captivity at Nuremberg. I could find that, but I couldn't find what the confessions were that were at the time very famous and had plastered and was a huge controversy in the United States and. Um, uh, we're not anyway. I did find them, and uh, ultimately, and I've worked a long time looking. I, I I wanted to research more the background to all of this before I wrote about it. Of course, for many years, I was still working, and as a I was a working psychologist, and like anyone a person who works, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of time for research and writing. Um, and um, so, only recently have I been able to finally, you know, put my uh, attentions to the subject and begin to write more about it. Um, so eh, I, hopefully I've answered your question and maybe a bit more. Yeah, yeah. That's what Schwabel, what Schwabel felt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, I wish I knew exactly what he felt. Um, for what any of these officers went through, I, I don't know. It's very complex. I'm sure uh, that he uh, was not, I do believe he was not happy with himself. He probably thought he was weak for having broken to the extent that he did collaborate to the extent he did. And by the way, in the trial, and in Leck's book on Schwabel, and Leck, who believes Schwabel was tortured, et cetera, admits, and, and, and the um, quotes uh, um, attorney at the, at the trial, that of uh, many aspects that Schwabel reported that were true, right? Just, just over and over again, the, name, the um, secret things that shouldn't have been talked about. Right, a chain of you know, um, uh, including um, operational um, um, information 
that was then current happening. That's like treason, right? Oh, yeah, you don't, uh, secret airbase K-8. Oh, yeah, well, K-8's at this city. Here's where it's located. Here's yep. the guy in charge. What? That's treason. Well, it's not treason. capped, it, was it? As it turns out, the United States government never gave specific instructions at that point in time of what people were supposed to do when they were captured. Um, they, you know, they said, oh, you know, it's supposed to be uh, name, rank, and serial number. No, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. That came later. Right. At the time, you just, you know, in fact, it was the fact that they didn't have much guidance that was a uh, gave um, um, there was a, uh, out of that controversy arose um, a major new uh, controversy over exactly what kind of rules of, of should be promulgated for a prisoner you know, for captured personnel and um, code of conduct and. Um, and that, that could be an article or a story in and of itself. And the, code of, the, the new code of conduct came out of the Korean War experience, but it didn't exist before it. Well, Doc, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good place for us to uh, pause for today. Um, I know you and I talked a little bit offline about uh, some other things that I had uh, scripted out, so I would uh, love yeah. for you to... No, no, sure. I, I, no, no. It's, it's, it's important to take that way. I have more, to, more time to read too. Um, right. But uh, I would love for you to come back here in the next week or two when you, when you have time, and we can sure. uh, keep talking about this. It's, it's incredibly fascinating and incredibly disturbing as well. Um, the implications for what some of our countrymen went through, and that no one knows about it. That a very few, very few people. But I really applaud your efforts to be part of this, to to research it, to to go after it in a in a a devoutly journalistic fashion. I think that it's it's really really it's really important subjects, um, especially and like you and I talked about offline about discussing the um, military law enforcement interrogation aspects mm-hmm. of it. Right. There's I I'm I'm wanting to go back into that history a bit and try to understand when and where some of those things came around. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about the the re techniques and the uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember his first name at the moment, but the the fellow that founded his uh, agency and everything, and his uh, like you mentioned his connections to uh, uh, to the CIA to uh, well, back they to were looking. Artichoke was looking at the Reed work Reed was doing, Reed and Associates, and uh, um, it's still I don't know I I. I, I I immediately wrote that off to a guy I know who used to be an interrogator for NCIS and um, he was interested, but I, I don't know that he knew about it, anything more about it. I don't think uh, um, that came from a document. And by the way, so as your listeners know, everything that I talk about is documented. Everything, you know, a lot of journalism articles you'll read um, and they'll say, this happened, that person said this, but you don't, you know, you just have to take their word for it. I provide a link and the link is usually to an original document Either that document might be from the cia it might be from the fbi it might be from you know as i say uh, an official history in, in-house within some military agency you know uh, uh or it could be the communications intelligence reports that were later published uh, by the cia and these things are all there to be looked at because history and, and journalism too needs to be checked just because i Absolutely. say this doesn't mean that it's true 
And so I, I want people to look at, I mean, that's the spirit that began my whole investigation. The New York Times says these things are false confessions based on Chinese torture. Where's the evidence? They don't provide the evidence. Or if they do, it goes to a, a history book that just states it and, does, and also doesn't yeah. provide the evidence. So, um, yeah. And, and, and when there is evidence contrary, I, I link to that as well. So links, for instance, to the retractions of the flyers who did retract that have been published, I link to those. And you can read what their, their stories of torture and what they had to say and why they were retracting. So it's, it's all out there to be examined. And thank you very much for inviting me on. I, I certainly will come back. Absolutely. Dr. Hu, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. We'll uh, talk again soon. Okay. Thank you very much. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. If you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.